It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to The Untold Story, everybody. I'm Martha McCallum. It is great to have you with us today, and I'm really pleased to be joined by my friend and colleague, Morgan Ortegas, who is joining us live from Tel Aviv, Israel, and she is traveling in the Middle East. She's the former spokesperson for the U.S. Department of State during the Trump administration. She's the founder of Polaris National Security the host of The Morgan Ortega Show on Sirius XM, and she joins us live from the ground, as I said, in Tel Aviv. Morgan, welcome. Great to have you with us. Thank you. It's great to be back in Israel and great to be with you, Martha. So, Morgan, tell us a little bit about what the goal of your travel is and what you've learned so far on the ground there about the ongoing war. You've spoken with most of the leadership in the country in the past few days. Tell us what you've learned. Well, like so many people who work in foreign policy and national security, um, I wanted to be on the ground and to see for myself the challenges that Israel is facing and how they're recovering from them. Um, first, I'll start probably with the most poignant thing that I've done over the last two days. This morning, I went with the speaker of the Knesset, Amir Ohana. He's from the Likud party. And we went to uh, the first, we think it was the first kibbutz or at least one of the first kibbutz that were attacked on October 7th by the terrorist. Uh, and and going into the kibbutz, um, you know, you, we've already are, all seen pictures and, and heard stories. Um, it's very eerie, Martha, to be there in person yourself um, to see it because everything was left. I went to Kafar Aza, um, which is, again, one of the first, if not the first kibbutz attacked. And everything is still the same um, since 6.30 in the morning on October 7th when the attacks happened. So it sort of felt like, uh, you know, maybe going into Dachau or one of the concentration camps right after uh, they were released, right after they were freed. And um, you still see shell casings on the ground. You can go into the houses and, and see some of the houses were burnt down. Some of the houses you see bullet holes. Interestingly, Martha, on, on many of the houses, there is a circle, a red circle with a dot in the middle. And that's how you know that people People were killed um, in that particular house. And what was really challenging about going to this kibbutz visit is we met um, two parents, one, a father who lost his daughter, uh, another woman um, whose uh, uh, son uh, is being held hostage in Gaza still today. And so you see, or excuse me, it was actually her daughter that was being held hostage in Gaza. And so you're with these parents that are just living every parent's worst, worst nightmare. Either their child were killed by terrorists or their child was taken hostage. And what was interesting about this particular kibbutz um, is that whenever you go into a section, there is a, a section where most of the people in their 20s live. So it was like very, it was the young section, so to speak. So teenagers, 20s, you know, young professionals, people studying in college. That was the part of the kibbutz that got hit the hardest. And we don't know for sure, but the Israelis do think that Hamas had advanced knowledge that that's where the young people were and they specifically uh, targeted it. Listen, whether it was targeted or random, that's the part of the kibbutz that got hit the most, where the most people were killed. And and like I said, it's more eerie, uh, you know, because you are just walking through everything as it was on October 7th. It's really sort of a living memorial. 
it, it is. I can't imagine being there and seeing it firsthand. I saw the all of the video that was uh, shot of the attack in that area, mm -hmm. so I can picture the homes that you're referring to and the bloody scene that it that it is. It's absolutely horrific. And so the, the, the impetus for the war is quite clear when you look at what happened on October the 7th. But as all war, it's complicated. And now what we're seeing in, in Israel, and we're seeing these, these hits of Hamas leaders in different countries. So I'm curious about your conversations with Prime Minister Netanyahu and Benny Gantz mm -hmm. and the rest of the leadership, Yolot Gallant, the defense secretary. Um, do you sense that there's a shift in the strategy in terms of how to eliminate Hamas? Is it becoming more about finding leaders and taking them out in other places? Or is it still a very strong ground war in Gaza? Well, that's a really interesting question. I will tell you, Martha, what surprised me is I thought that we would end up talking more about Lebanon and Hezbollah, especially because uh, just a few days ago, uh, a senior Hamas leader was targeted in, in a very precise targeted strike in Beirut, Lebanon, and was killed. I sort of thought that's where the conversation would go. But I will tell you, the Israeli leadership is still very, very focused on eliminating Hamas. They understand that Hamas uh, was the was the one that perpetrated this awful, the worst killing of the Jewish people uh, since the Holocaust, and so they are they are very clear focused. They are very laser focused on eliminating them. And and when they talk about Gaza, and, you know, they're being pushed not only by the U.S. administration but by people around the world about what the day after looks like in Gaza. And they're and the Israelis are saying, well, listen, we we have to get to the day after first, right? We have to get to the place. We're not even there yet where we have defeated Hamas militarily. But one thing that they're all consistent on is that Gaza must be demilitarized and Gaza must be de-radicalized. You know, one of the things that I, I didn't really realize, Martha, um, I knew Hamas was coming over in waves. There was three big waves uh, that day. By the third wave, because the fence had broken down, by the third wave, it was uh, plenty of just regular Gazans. They weren't necessarily a part of Hamas or the other terrorist group, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, or Pij for short. Uh, they were other Gazans that came over the fence to rape and to pillage uh, and to loot and to take part in those activities. So that shows you how radicalized that population is. It's going to take time. I certainly, years ago, 12 years ago, I lived in Saudi Arabia and was a part of um, uh, their uh, de-radicalization efforts for people that had gone to Al-Qaeda. So de-radicalizing the population is definitely going to get time, take time. That's a long-term goal. But all of the leaders here in Israel stress the importance of demilitarizing uh, this population and, and defeating Hamas militarily. And they know that they cannot move on as a government, as a people, until that happens. And, you know, I would remind Americans that there's still 250 thousand Israelis that can't go home either in the north or in the south because of ongoing rocket attacks from either Hamas and, and, and Pish in the south or Hezbollah. The Untold Story continues right after this. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.
I know you spoke with Hirsch Goldberg, Poland's mom. We have spoken with his parents several times over the last several months since this happened. She's an incredibly, they're both incredibly strong and inspiring, but it doesn't feel like there's a lot of positive movement on getting more hostages out right now. What did the leadership think- in Israel tell you about those efforts and how successful they, they think they may be? Well, first of all, it was an honor to meet Hersh's mother, Rachel, and his father, John. I actually told them, Martha, that I was coming on your show, and they got really excited. And they're just so grateful. Um, They're so grateful that you and other journalists have given their son uh, the spotlight. They're not giving up on him because, you know, listen, he's an American citizen. Mm -hmm. And I think while they are grateful that President Biden has called them and they're grateful for the administration, and, and they're certainly, I think, grateful for Israel advocating for them. It is the primary job whenever you have the presidency, whenever you are the administration, the power, it's your primary job to keep Americans safe and to bring them home if they are held hostage. That is that is their responsibility. And so I, I, it's, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to continue to put uh, Hirsch's name out there and, and to continue to keep um, his presence uh, alive, uh, alive and in everyone's ears because there are still American hostages that are left behind that did not get out in the first few exchanges. You know, as it relates to what the Israeli government is going to be able to do, we didn't get into detail on that, but I will say that in my meeting with Bibi Netanyahu, he, he made it very clear that he has two main priorities, and that is to defeat Hamas. It must be a total victory. Uh, and to get the rest of the hostages home. And um, and all of the government leaders stress that. So I know it's at the top of their mind. And it's, it's important, I think, to the psyche of the Israeli people to get everyone home. But it should also be the first priority of the American government, of the Biden administration as well. Do you think it is? I think it is. I certainly think they care and want to get Americans home. Um, I can tell you that your negotiators are only as good um, as the leverage that they have. And so until this administration, you know, listen, it's hard once you've failed at deterrence and once you've had three years uh, of policies that are appeasing and emboldening the Islamic Republic of Iran, which pays for it, enables all of these attacks, it's hard to get leverage back um, at the negotiating table. So they are just going to have to use American force, American might, American will. I think sometimes they are afraid to use it, but whether it comes to getting the hostages back or getting the Houthis to stop attacking American ships or getting Iranian uh, Shia militias in Iraq and Syria to stop attacking our forces. Until the uh, uh, until this administration takes actions that are so strong that it deters that from happening, you just lose le- you lose leverage at the negotiating table. It's never easy to get Americans back. But I can tell you, Mike Pompeo and Brian Hook and the Trump administration got two Americans out of Iranian prison, and we did it for zero dollars. So it can happen if you have the right negotiators and the right leverage. Do you think that Iran, because you see the how empowered their proxies seem to feel in different regions, whether it's Hezbollah in the north or the Houthis and what they are are doing in terms of these drone attacks in the Red Sea, they seem very emboldened. Do you think that Iran believes that this is their moment and that they can wipe Israel off the map in the coming years? 
You know, I, I think it's important to believe uh, the rhetoric of despots and dictators and terrorist regimes. I think that's part of the problem is that many times that we don't believe people when they say these things. Mm -hmm. We didn't believe Putin's bluster. And then look what happened whenever he invaded uh, Ukraine. You know, we don't we tend not to believe the bluster of the Iranian regime of the Ayatollah. And when they say that they want to uh, rid and w wipe off the math, map uh, Israel and the United States, you know, I think it's time to believe them. We should believe Xi Jinping when he says this in his New Year's speech about Taiwan. Uh, you know, these these de despots and dictators and terrorists, they don't care what is said about them at cocktail parties in Europe. And, and that's why we have to get serious and realistic about who we are facing and who we're dealing with. Iran's overall goal is they want the United States out of the Middle East. You know, these terrorist groups do not, they didn't commit these terrorist acts um, because they were trying to free the Palestinian people. They did it because they want to kill Jews. They want to annihilate the Jewish state. They want control over all uh, of Israel, and they are happy for the Jews to be killed or, or to go elsewhere. And similarly, they want—they don't like U.S. presence in the region. They want to drive us out from the re region. And so all of these attacks, Martha, are sort of like just a, a, a you know, a knock, a knock at the stone, right? It's not one crack. It's just the continual chipping away at the stone that Iran does with these terrorist groups to try and chip away at our resolve and at our will. But that's just not how the world works. I mean, you can go and hide underneath uh, the rock, but, you know, the terrorists will come for you. So what is your sense from the leadership in Israel about how they view the upcoming U.S. elections since we're now in election year? Yeah, we didn't get into that a ton. I think what was important to them um, is is to see bipartisan um, support. Uh, they were very concerned. There was a lot of questions about the supplemental, um, which, as you have reported, are, is being debated heavily uh, in the Congress. And that's, of course, uh, in funding for Israel, Taiwan, Ukraine, and, of course, the border provisions would be in that supplemental. So I think top of mind for them was to try and understand what would happen with the supplemental if Israel get continued aid um, and support. And, and I think the, uh, you know, what's important to them is they know that they can't have a relationship with just one political party in the United States. They have to have a relationship with both parties. But I don't think that they are willing um, to sacrifice the what they see as the security and the safety needs uh, for Israel in order to please either one of our political parties either. Fascinating. So where are you off to next? Headed to Saudi Arabia. I lived there in 2010 and 11 as the U.S. Treasury uh, attache to the region. So we will be meeting with their government and uh, and talking really about. I mean, listen. Ultimately, everyone says everyone's putting it on Israel, saying, "Well, what's your day after plan for Gaza?" Well, truthfully, no one. The Arab world is probably going to reject. The Palestinians themselves will probably reject the first thing that the Israelis put out. So the day after plan uh, needs to be something that is Arab-led. It's not something that the United States needs to, you know, foist on upon the Palestinians and the Israelis. But it needs to be a vision, a plan for governance that I think should not include um, Hamas, obviously, but also should not include Mahmoud Abbas. And I think that the, that Middle Eastern governments, um, especially governments like Saudi Arabia that have a lot of clout in the region and other governments are going to need to get together and help uh, and help make that establish that day after governing plan. It really should not be incumbent just upon Israel to come up with a plan that we know the Palestinians will just reject anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've seen that happen time and time again. And you look back at October 6th, there was so much hope for an Israeli Saudi deal. And both sides in interviews with Brett Baer talked about 
being the, the, the power centers of the Middle East and uh, growth, economic growth for the Middle East. And a lot of that was dashed and certainly put on the back burner on October the 7th. And now we find ourselves in an yeah. extraordinarily complicated situation. But you are uh, helping us understand it, Morgan. So thank you for very much uh, for speaking with us from your time in Tel Aviv. And uh, good luck on your trip to Saudi Arabia. We look forward to speaking with you soon. Thank you very much for joining us today. Sounds great. Thank you, Martha. Morgan Ortega joining us on The Untold Story. I'm Martha McCallum. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Make sure to rate and review. For more podcasts, go to foxnewspodcast.com. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.